Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with him sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Let us pray. Lord, all of your word is holy. All of your word is beyond our fullest comprehension. It is clear and is plain enough to save even the youngest child. Lord, as for us grasping the fullness of these things, they are beyond us. Lord, we only ask that you would open our hearts just a little bit more, that we might receive just a little bit more of this, your word in such a holy and such an amazing place. And ask that you would be glorified in it all, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 23, in the section particularly covering verses 32 to 38... This is after the trial, after the kangaroo court, and after the trial in Pilate's praetorium, and after this scourging which some men died, after the long walk bearing his own cross, and this brief, cruel mercy of giving the cross to this Simon, we last come to the place that is called Golgotha, or else Calvary as we have it here. And it was a place reserved for crucifixions. As with all such things, you do not conduct them just anywhere. There is a place, not, ni- not normally a nice place, one that is good for nothing else, that is reserved for crucifixion. Now, of course, it was outside of the city of Jerusalem because it was a cursed place. It was for those under curse and those who therefore had to be outside of the city, would not have done for Christ who died inside, but just outside this city. And the scene is described in brief, starting in verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And we know, of course, that these were part of the insurrection, part of that group. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. We'll pass over that which you probably already know, the unspeakable horrors of crucifixion, this means of torture by which it was a slow and painful death extracted from the worst enemies of the Roman government. And as we had previously mentioned, Jesus was here taking the place of Barabbas, the ringleader of the insurrectionists, those who rebelled with armed force and terror against the Roman government. 
And the people had said they wanted Barabbas, and rather they wanted Jesus crucified. And in accordance with their will, Jesus was here taking that middle cross with the lieutenants of Barabbas on either side. And it is here even in this act, in the very act of crucifixion, we think it is happening either as he's actually being nailed to the cross or hoisted up into the upright position or immediately thereafter that he says these words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And this is the very first of these seven last words of Christ, the seven words of the cross. Now it's extremely important that we come to grips with the implications of these words. It isn't easy, I will say. They are so beyond our experience, so beyond even our imagination. We are simply not like the Lord Jesus. And the more extreme the circumstances, the more the heat, the furnace of the fire is turned up, the more it becomes clear to us that we are simply not like him. And we've never met anyone like him on earth. And therefore, these words being so far away from our experience, they're like a foreign language we do not understand. But we ask all the more that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit would grant to us the understanding that we need. And so I propose, in a departure from our normal manner of doing things, to ask a series of questions. Not three points, not four points, but seven questions, fairly brief questions for the most part, having to do with this first of the seven sayings of the cross. Father, forgive them. And I'll just mention these seven questions. To whom is he speaking? What is he asking for? For whom is he asking? On what rationale? Why did he ask? On what basis? And what did it accomplish? Let me just read again these words, starting in verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They divided his garments and cast lots. So the first question, to whom is he speaking This may be the most straightforward of them all. It is to the Father. And this is a reminder of the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity because, friends, apart from that, the Son has no one to speak to. But no, he has a Father. He is eternally begotten of that Father. He has begotten eternally. There never was a time in which he was not in existence and also God with the Father and with the Spirit But he has taken on flesh and he's come to this place as the God-man. And so he has someone to speak to in this dark moment. And it is his own beloved father. The father who had sent the son on this very mission. The father who had given to the world his only begotten son. And he had come into this world for no other purpose ultimately than to come to the cross. That's why he had set his face toward Jerusalem. This is the place where he was to accomplish the mission given to him by his father, and it is to him he is speaking. He is addressing his, his prayer. Second question, what is he asking for? Forgive them, that they be forgiven. 
forgiven. Same words as in, in, in Luke 17, 3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. He's speaking to ordinary people. And he says, if your brother repents, you ought to forgive him no matter how many times he sins against you. Now, as a minimum, it means to forgive this particular sin. The killing of the Son of God, who was God. Friends, how do we characterize that sin? You know, not all sin is alike. Our standards and the scripture make very, very clear that actually they differ in their severity in accordance with just how important the person is in just uh, how extreme the sin against them might be and all the other circumstances that either lessen or make worse the severity of the, of, of the sin. And what can we say? What can we say about the killing of the only Son of God? What can we say about that? about creation, about creatures rising up from the dust in rebellion against their maker in such hatred that they wish to murder God. Friends, I don't know what words to add to it. It it was the greatest of all possible sins. There could not be any greater than the killing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, what he is asking for is that those who are doing this most immediately, that they be forgiven. Thirdly, then, for whom is he asking? Because that's the obvious question. Exactly whom? Who, he's saying, Father, forgive them. Who is the them? What is that pronoun? What is that reference there? Certainly to the soldiers who were crucifying him. That is absolutely clear. The soldiers who were actually putting him to death He's asking, Father, forgive them. That's amazing in itself. Almost certainly also the centurion overseeing the soldiers, so that that group there, those who are most immediately responsible for his own death, he is saying, forgive them. Could it be also all the Romans involved? Quite possibly. Maybe even Pilate, who had given this order to the centurion, who had given the order to those soldiers to nail Jesus to that cross. And perhaps even those who had shouted, crucify him, quite possibly. The ones who had early, earlier said, Hosanna to the son of David, who then were shouting, crucify him. It is at least conceivable that they were included in that group. Or Jesus said, forgive them. The Jewish leaders who had led the effort, probably not. Because they certainly knew exactly what they were doing. And we have no indication that they repented and came to faith. There is, of course, the fact of God's judgment in AD 70, precisely for this great sin, the wrath that came upon that city. But for all these others, it is entirely possible that Jesus was praying for them. For all others who had some hand in this, the word to them was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that brings us to our fourth question. On what rationale does he he ask this request of the Father that they be forgiven? What is the rationale? It's for they know not what they do. Let me just say that all prayer should have a rationale, some reason why God should grant your petition. On what basis are you praying to the living God? That's why we always come with some attribute or some title 
of God, some promise that he has given to us, because we have to have a rationale on which to ask. It's not in our hand to do. You don't need a rationale to do something on your own behalf. But you as a creature, you as a servant, coming to the living God, you need some rationale. And even the God-man, even the Son, as he was the Son, as he was the, the mediator, he makes some, he has some rationale on which a basis to ask. And what makes these sinners, guilty of a crime that defies all imagination, somehow worthy of the Father's notice, somehow eligible? There's There's some reason why they might be eligible for forgiveness. What is it? Ignorance, he says. They know not what they're doing. We say ignorance of the law is no excuse. God is a just God. He judges on the basis of what people know. He's never going to judge people on the basis of what they don't know. And sin, the more people know, the more that they sin against the light, the more they're going to be judged severely. God is only going to be judging on the basis of strict justice those who know, not those who don't know. Now, friends, let me be very careful as as I'm going to say what I'm going to say, but surely this statement must be true because it came from the lips of our Lord. When he said, forgive them for they do not know what they're, they're doing, surely it must be true. But I want to say, I want to suggest to you that this is a charitable assessment, friends. It's a charitable assessment of their situation. Because they could have hardly have been entirely ignorant of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He was well known. When he came to Herod, Herod was glad. Why? Because for a long time he had been looking forward to seeing this miracle worker. It wasn't that he had done just one little miracle in a corner. He had raised the dead. And people knew that. People knew that. They could have hardly have been entirely ignorant of the triumphal entry days before in which he is being called the son of David. That happened here in our city. We would know about this one. We may not have met him, but we would have heard about such a man. And friends, if they had somehow missed that, what is sitting on the top of the cross? As they are nailing him to it. There's a sign. Know what it says? An inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Just in case you didn't know one of those languages, surely you would have known one of the others. For these soldiers, probably it was Latin. This is the king of the Jews. More than likely, the whole detachment of soldiers were present at Pilate's hall. They weren't just waiting out there at Golgotha. They were the ones who had been assigned this detail to crucify. And the whole process from the scourging, the procession of the cross, to the actual crucifixion that was given to a particular centurion, that was his work, and these were his soldiers, and they were in all likelihood present when Pilate not once 
not twice, but three or more times, declared publicly the innocence of this man. And to add to it, they had observed his conduct throughout this time. Under the worst of circumstances, they had seen other men, sinners like you and I, undergo this, manifesting their sinful nature. But now they had seen the sinless Son of God. And it was this sort of conduct that eventually led the centurion just slightly later on to say, surely, certainly, this was a righteous man. What does this mean? Beloved, I have had occasion to to sit as a judge in a military sense. And if the the master sergeant or the, the lieutenant came to me and on this basis said they, they didn't know what they were doing. I'm afraid that wouldn't wash with me. What does it mean then? The Lord Jesus Christ. Does it, I, look, as I say, surely it was true in some sense. It must have been because the Lord Jesus said it. But as I said, he, it is an extraordinarily charitable assessment of their situation. And what that means is he is ready to use any rationale. Any rationale. However threadbare it might be. In order to secure the forgiveness of those who are sinning against him in the worst possible way. Why? That surely brings us, that drags us to the next question. Fifthly, why? Why did he ask? Why was he willing to use this threadbare rationale to secure the forgiveness of these people? Where to begin? Well, I suppose the beginning of our own salvation, which is in the basis of love. Love to sinners. A propensity to forgive those who had wronged him. Indeed, a love that drove him entirely drove the father. Yes, the the father's love sent the son, and the son was glad to go. He delighted in doing the will of the father because of the love that he bore to sinners. This is exactly, this is precisely what brought him to the cross. He was there in order to do this work, to secure the forgiveness of those who didn't deserve to be forgiven. And friends, as long as we think that we are more eligible than some other sinner for salvation, we do not understand the gospel. There was no good reason for these people to be forgiven. And there is no good reason for any of those whom Christ came to die for to be forgiven. None of them are entirely ignorant All of them in justice deserve the condemnation and wrath of God in hell forever. And even more so those who put to death the Son of God. And love drove him there. Love kept him there. Love kept him in his prayers in Gethsemane. 
rather than sending the legion of angels to rescue him. Love kept him there to be bound and nailed to that cross. He loved sinners. That's why. And I would add to that joy. Love brought him there, but joy is a thing that sustained him. Joy is a thing that, that kept him in this situation of unbearable pain. Because we know that verse in Hebrews, which we'll never ever get to the end of. You'll never hear the end of it from me. Because we'll never get to the end of it. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him. You mean being in heaven with the Father? No, that's what he always had. There was nothing to gain there. There's no reason to go to earth to do anything, let alone be crucified, to to gain what you already had. No, it's us, sinners, that gave him that, that, that the thought of having redeemed sinners with him in all eternity. That was the joy that was set before him. That was the great reward. That was what it was all about. The bride that he came to secure for himself is the joy set before him. And friends, there it is. As he's here, I look, here are sinners. Yes, the ones who are crucifying me, but I would delight for them to be with me in heaven, to be part of my bride. Is that joy then that drives him to say, Father, forgive them, because he wants them. And then there's glory. There's love, there's joy, there's glory, because you know what? He wants to bring his Father glory. John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. That's the glory. That's the kind of glory that he's going to have. And that's the glory he's giving to his Father as he is giving life to those who don't deserve it. As he is forgiving sinners. And he wanted more forgiven sinners because that gives, that adds to the glory of his Father. He's not dying for nothing. We're not Arminians. We believe he died for something. And he wants more forgiven sinners. We don't know the end of these things exactly, but how glorious would it be to see all the soldiers who crucified the Lord in heaven? Would that bring glory to the Father? Absolutely. That's why the Son died, to bring glory to the Father. And here the Father in His goodness, the Father in His delight in the Son is giving the Son what He asked for. Adding to His joy, adding to the efficacy, adding to the fruit of this sacrifice. Glory. Well, the sixth question is asked on what basis? Because you have to understand it's a very different issue, a very different question to ask than a rationale. Jesus gives a rationale. And we can always come to someone in authority with some little rationale in which we're asking for something. But to have a real basis 
is a different thing indeed. And sin is sin. All sin merits death. God is holy. Christ is holy. And there must be some real basis in justice for this to be asked, for this to be granted. A holy God simply does not forget about sin on no basis. There must be some meritorious basis. Now that basis is not hard to find, is it, friends? It wasn't hard for us to see how the the soldiers are not entirely ignorant because they have a sign in front. And even as they are nailing him, and he is calling out to the Father, Father, forgive them, we have the meritorious basis before us, and it is a sacrifice of the Son. And that is reinforced for us, even in the text in verse 35, that people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Listen. Listen. He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Then the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine. Keep in mind, they're not just, I'm sorry I have to do this, Jesus. They're doing it with malice and hatred. And they sneer at him and they mock at him. and Make fun of him even as he is dying. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Beloved, no, he can't. Jesus cannot save himself. That is the one thing that he cannot do. He can save others, but he cannot save himself. If he wishes indeed to save anyone else. The real basis must be in his own death. And what they say, even though they have no idea what they're saying at this point, is absolutely true. He does save others. In fact, he's going to save some of them. But he cannot save himself. Because that's the basis on which he's asking. The basis on which he comes. Again, if, if the master sergeant or the lieutenant comes and forgive them, they didn't know what they're doing. Surely you have something, some basis there. Well, friends, the son has the the basis of which the father cannot say no to. His blood is already dripping down to the ground. And it is enough. It is sufficient. This particular sacrifice is completely efficacious. And the son can ask for whatever he wants on this basis. Because his blood is precious, infinitely precious. There's no sin, there's no sinner that he he can, it's almost as if he's flaunting his ability to forgive sinners on this basis. Father, forgive them. Yes, on this flimsy basis. Because my blood is so efficacious, so meritorious, so powerful, that even the very worst of sins and the worst of sinners, yes, on that basis, the Father will hear such prayers. Isaiah 53.12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He was. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Same word. He was numbered with the transgressors. 
And he's making an intercession for the transgressors. Even that one on one of his sides, one of the ones that was making fun of him, he is making intercession even for him. And the ones who nailed him made intercession for them. Because this basis is just so powerful, so perfect. It has such sway with the Father that is sufficient, even though the, the, the rationale was flimsy, threadbare even. But the basis is all-powerful. All-powerful. Seventh, and finally, what did it accomplish? Well, we have to know that we'll only, we'll only understand the, the depth of this in eternity. We'll only know exactly who was saved in it. We know but I want to assure you that the Father hears the prayers of the Son. And we're not going to find out that it's, it's a, a measly and token answering of the prayer. We know surely it included that penitent thief. We know that it included the centurion who came to repentance and said, Surely this was a righteous man. We think it included those 3,000 at Pentecost soon enough to be saved, the ones whom Peter says, you crucified him. This one that was attested by great works and miracles, you crucified. And yet, they were forgiven. It's an answer to Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them. They were. There is the lifeblood of his son was already being spilled. The father could not do any other than to agree and to answer to this prayer and to answer in the most emphatic way. Yes, I will forgive them. I will. It accomplished great things. One day we'll know the fullness of it. Perhaps even you and I. And that larger sense in which every sinner participates in the death of Christ because it was for our sin that he died on that cross. Maybe even that prayer extends to us and accomplished our salvation. Applications. Sinner, come. It's beyond my imagination that there should be someone like Jesus Christ and that he should ever speak such words and mean them. It's beyond all imagination. And friends, he did. He did live, he did die, he did rise again the third day and he spoke such words and he meant them. I want to say to you, it does not matter what you have done. The worst crime imaginable, I... I do not just suspect, I know that he is willing to forgive you. So I, I've seen it. We have before us his willingness to forgive those who had sinned in the worst imaginable way against him most personally. How much more so is he going to forgive you? And I know he is able to do it because he, friends, can save anyone he wants to. Again, how can I escape the conclusion that he is flaunting this power? And he delights in saving the very worst. 
It's as if it would be a trivial matter to save the ordinary sinner. And he utterly delights. He glories in saving the very worst. He saves people like like Paul, the chief of sinners, persecuting his own church. Like Peter denying him. Like the soldiers crucifying him. He delights in that sinner. You could be the worst sinner that this world has known. And yet that blood is efficacious for you. It is sufficient to save you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Secondly, to the saint, I say take comfort in Christ's intercession. It is only recently that I've begun to understand the true depth of this work of Christ in intercession. Even in the midst of of his work of atonement, of his work of sacrifice, he is doing the other work of a priest. Not only to make sacrifice of himself, but of to make intercession for the sinner. And if you are here, if you are a Christian, if you have been kept, if you will ever be saved, it is because of his intercessory prayer. Again, that wonderful text in Isaiah 53, he made intercession for the transgressors. That's me. That's you. This is his work. And friends, it works. All right? This work of Christ, of intercession, it always works. It always prevails with the Father. The Father never says no. And the Son never stops asking on our behalf. If ever we are to make it to heaven, it is because... Christ has interceded for us. But friends, if Christ has interceded for us, then we will certainly make it to heaven. And we should take great, great comfort in this ongoing work of the Son of God. Now, for us and more practically, thirdly, we need to pray for our enemies. Not easy to do so. Not easy. But we have to. Lord makes it very clear. Matthew 5:43 You have heard it that it was said you shall love your enemy your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say to you love your enemies bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you friends there are hypocrites in this world who who preach and do not practice who do not practice what they preach And unfortunately, I and every human preacher are probably among them. But Jesus Christ is no hypocrite. And when he told his disciples way back in the Sermon of the Mount to pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, he meant it. And he did so himself. He did precisely that. And he is calling on us to do likewise. Pray for your enemies. Fourthly and finally, we need to forgive. We need to forgive those who sin against us. Forgive them. Again, we have to think about the relative magnitude of the offense that happens to us compared to the offense that happens to Christ. 
you understand that these people after, these soldiers after they had mocked him and scourged him, again a scourging which some did not even survive the severity of it, inflicting every kind of pain that they knew how, mocking him as they went, blaspheming the Son of God, torturing him further with carrying the cross until he could carry it no no more and fell over on the ground, then nailing his hands and feet to this cross and lifting him up, mocking and spiting him as they went, and they were doing this against the only Son of God. Friends, what is the magnitude of the offense that you are unwilling to forgive? Is there someone or something that you say, I can forgive all other but not that? Does it even in the cold light of day begin to compare with that sort of offense? Or with the denial of Peter, your best friend, for instance, your closest associate, denying that even knows you in your great hour of need? Does it really compare with such things? Well, even if it does, we are called to be like Christ and forgive those who have sinned against us. Now, the objection, the objection, I know the objection. I have this one too. But they don't ask for forgiveness. Well, you're going to have to help me out here to to draw out this particular implication. But at what point did the soldiers ask for forgiveness? Where? I didn't see it. Because they didn't. They didn't. And Jesus Christ, on the basis of his shed blood, is calling out to the Father, forgive them. Let me just take you again back to that verse in Luke 17.3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. A couple of things to be said here. One, this particular aspect has more to do with brothers, actually. Right? Because it is a loving and right thing that brothers ought to be brought to repentance because it wouldn't be good for them to carry on not knowing that they've sinned against you. And if things work the way that they should, brothers and sisters in the Christian faith should come and ask forgiveness. They should repent and ask for forgiveness, and you should immediately grant it. That's the way it works in the community of faith. These soldiers weren't brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not going to ask for forgiveness. That does not therefore give us leave never to forgive them. Rather... We should be as willing to forgive as Christ himself. Now, what about those brothers? Now, you say, well, okay, then that leaves another category. Brothers and sisters who never ask for forgiveness. Well, in some cases, maybe they're not believers. It's entirely possible. In which case, you need to pray all the more for them. They're your enemies. Pray for them. Maybe, just maybe, they are believers. And friends... You pray for them in in their weakness and deal with them as you would have someone else deal with you. And let's say that you're in a situation where you have forgotten something and never have asked for forgiveness. Or else in your weakness you can't bring yourself to ask for forgiveness. How would you wish to be dealt with 
by your Christian brother or sister? I'll leave you with the answer. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what can we say to these words beyond what have been said? They are too much for us. It is hard to take in just such a man and such words which are so very far from our experience. We are so unworthy of them. And Christ is so infinitely glorious, so loving, so merciful, so ready to forgive. Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us to receive such a gospel. It is better than we imagined. It only gets better and better the more that we understand this Christ whom we've put our faith in. And how indeed we pray that each and every one, even the most unworthy, even the hardest of sinners, even the most lifted up in pride among us, and we know that unbelief is born of pride, would surely receive forgiveness from such a one. And that Christ would have others to glorify the Father. He would have others in which to enjoy eternity, the joy that was set before him. An expression of his love. And that we, Lord, would pray even for those who are our worst enemies. In sincerity, that the very best would be done for them. And that we would stand ever ready to forgive, just as ready as the Lord Jesus himself. Those who had done their very worst to him. Lord, increase our faith. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.